It is God that justifieth. What a wonderful thing it is, this being justified, pardoned, and cleared from guilt. If we never broke the laws of God, we wouldn't need to be justified, because we would be just in ourselves. The person who has done the things he should all his life, and has never done anything which he should not, is justified by the law. But I'm quite sure you're not that sort. You have too much honesty to pretend to be without sin, and as a result you need to be justified. However, if you try to justify yourself, you'll simply be deceiving yourself. Therefore, don't try it. It is never worth it. If you ask other people to justify you, what can they do? You can make some of them speak well of you for small favors, and others will speak evil of you for less. Their judgment isn't worth much. Our text says, God is he that justifies, which is a lot more to the point. It's an astonishing fact, and one we ought to carefully consider. In the first place, nobody but God would ever think of justifying those who are guilty. They've lived in open rebellion and committed evil with both hands. They've gone from bad to worse and turned back to sin even after they hurt because of it and were forced to leave it for a while. They've broken the law and trampled on the gospel. They've refused declarations of mercy and have persisted in ungodliness. How can they be forgiven and justified? The people in their lives look at this and bleakly say, they are hopeless cases. Even Christians look at them with sorrow rather than with hope. But that is not how their God sees them. He chose some of them before the foundation of the world, and in the splendor of his electing grace he won't rest until he has justified them and made them to be accepted in the Beloved. Isn't it written, And unto those whom he did mark out beforehand the way, to these he also called. And to whom he called, these he also justified. And to whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans 8, 30. When you look at it in this way, you see there are some whom the Lord agrees to justify. Why shouldn't you and I be among them? No one but God would ever have thought of justifying me. I am a wonder to myself and don't doubt that others view grace in others similarly. Consider Saul of Tarsus, footnote, Acts 9, who was born to Jewish parents who possessed Roman citizenship. He studied Jewish law under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, and later worked against God's servants to destroy the early church. He entered homes of believers and placed them in prison. Like a hungry wolf, he worried the lambs and the sheep at every turn. But God struck him down on the road to Damascus while he was on his way to arrest believers there. God changed his heart on that road and so fully justified him that before long he became the greatest preacher of justification by faith who ever lived. Saul of Tarsus changed his name from the Hebrew Saul to his Gentile name Paul and was sent by God to the Gentiles with the good news. He must often have marveled that he was justified by faith in Christ Jesus, because he was once a determined stickler for salvation by the works of a law. No one but God 
would have ever thought of justifying such a man as Saul the persecutor. But the Lord God is glorious in grace. Even if someone thought about justifying the ungodly, no one but God could do it, because it is impossible for a person to forgive offenses which have not been committed against them. Yes, you can forgive a person who has injured you in some way, and I hope you will, but no third-party person can forgive the offender apart from you. If the wrong is done to you, the pardon must come from you. However, all sin is against God, and if we have sinned against God, it is in God's power to forgive, because the sin is against Him. That is why in Psalm 51, 4, David says, Against thee, against thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. For God can forgive the offense, because He is the one against whom the offense is committed. If it pleases Him, our great Creator can forgive the debt we owe to God. And if He forgives it, it is cancelled. No one but the great God whom we sinned against can blot out that sin. Therefore, let's make sure we go to Him and seek mercy at His hands and not be led astray by those who would want us to confess to them instead of to God. They have no authority in the Word of God for their claims. Even if they were appointed to declare absolution in God's name, it's still better to go directly to the great Lord through Jesus Christ, the Mediator, to seek and find pardon at His hand. It is better to see to matters of your soul yourself, rather than to leave them in some man's hands. Only God can justify the ungodly, but He can do it to perfection. He casts our sins behind His back. He blots them out, and He says that though they are sought for, they won't be found. Isaiah 43:25. With no other reason than his own infinite goodness, he has prepared a glorious way by which he makes scarlet sins as white as snow. Isaiah 1:18. And removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103:12. He says, "Their iniquities I will remember no more." Hebrews 8.12 He does whatever is necessary to make an end of sin. One of the old prophets called out in amazement, Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellion with the remnant of his heritage? He did not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Micah 7.18 We're not speaking of justice now, nor are we talking about God's dealing with men according to their rewards. If you agree to deal with the righteous Lord on the law's terms, you are threatened with everlasting wrath, because according to the law, that's what you deserve. Scripture, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, 10 but now he treats us on terms of free grace and infinite compassion. He says, I will heal their rebellion. I will love them freely. Hosea 14.4 Believe it. It is certain and true that the great God is able to treat the guilty with abundant mercy. 
He is able to treat the ungodly as if they've always lived godly. Read the parable of the prodigal son carefully, Luke 15, 11 to 32, and you'll see how the forgiving father received the returning wanderer with as much love as if he'd never gone away and never contaminated himself with harlots. The mercy he showed went so far that the elder brother began to grumble about it. But the father never withdrew his love. My dear listener, no matter how guilty you may be, if you just come to God, our Father, by faith in Jesus Christ, He will treat you as if you've never done wrong. Do you see what a marvelous thing it is that God would think of justifying the ungodly? What do you say? Again, I want to make this very clear. No one other than God can do this, and He still does it. Look how the Apostle Paul puts the question. Who shall accuse the chosen of God's? God is he that justifies them. Romans 8.33 If God has justified a person, it is done completely. It is done right. It is impartially done. And it is everlastingly done. I read a statement written in a magazine against the gospel and those who preach. It stated that Christians hold some kind of theory by which we imagine sin can be removed from people. Let's be clear. We hold no theory. We declare a fact. The greatest fact under heaven is this, that Christ, by his precious blood, actually does away with sin. And God, for Christ's sake, deals with people with divine mercy. He forgives the guilty and justifies them not according to anything he sees in them, or foresees will be in them, but according to the riches of his mercy which lie in his own heart. Ephesians 2, 7 This we have preached, do preach, and will preach as long as we live. Scripture God is he that justifies them. Romans eight thirty three. That justifies the ungodly. He isn't ashamed of doing it, nor are we ashamed of preaching it. The justification which comes from God is without question. If the judge clears me, who can condemn me? If the highest court in the universe has pronounced me just, who can charge me with anything? Scripture, who is he that condemns them? Christ Jesus is he who died, and even more, he that also rose again who furthermore is at the right hand of God, who also makes entreaty for us. Romans 8.34 Justification from God is a sufficient answer to an awakened conscience. The Holy Spirit breathes peace over our entire nature, and we are no longer afraid. With this justification, we can answer all the yelling and insulting language of Satan and ungodly people. With this, we will be able to die and boldly rise again and face the last great judgment, not guilty. I will stand boldly on that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, while by my Lord absolved I am from sin's tremendous curse and blame. Sinzendorf Footnote Charles B. Snap Songs of Grace and Glory for Private, Family, and Public Worship. 
London, W. Hunt and Co., 1872. The Lord can blot out all your sins. I'm not making a shot in the dark when I say this, because God's word says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Matthew 12, 31. Though you're steeped up to your neck in crime, with a word he can remove the pollution of sin and say, I will be thou clean. Matthew 8, 3. The Lord is a great forgiver. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Footnote, the Apostles' Creed. Do you? He can even at this moment declare, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Luke 7, 50. And if he does this, no power in heaven or earth or under the earth can place you under suspicion, much less under wrath. Don't doubt the power of almighty love. You couldn't forgive your fellow man if they offended you like you've offended God. But don't measure God by yourself. His thoughts and ways are way above yours. Like the heavens are high above the earth. Isaiah 55, 8-9 You might say, it would be a huge miracle if the Lord were to pardon me. You're right. It would be an absolute miracle. And so he is likely to do it, because he does great and difficult things which thou dost not know. Jeremiah 33, 3. In my own case, I was stuck with such a horrible sense of guilt that it made my life miserable. But when I heard the command, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no one else. Isaiah 45:22. I looked to him, and in a moment the Lord justified me. As I looked to him, I saw Jesus Christ made sin for me, and that sight gave me rest. Matthew 11:28. When those who were bitten by the fiery serpents in the wilderness looked to the serpent of brass, they were healed immediately. Numbers 21, 9. This is how it was when I looked to the crucified Savior. The Holy Spirit, who enabled me to believe, gave me peace through believing. Before this, I felt condemned, but once I believed, I knew without a doubt I was forgiven because the Word of God declared it. I had felt my condemnation was certain, and my conscience agreed. But when the Lord justified me, I was just as sure by the same proof. The word of the Lord in the scripture says, He that believes on him is not condemned. John 3:18. And my conscience bears witness that I believed and that God in pardoning me is just. As a result, I have the witness of the Holy Spirit and my own conscience. And these two agree. Romans 9, 1. Oh, how I wish you would receive God's declaration on this matter, and you would immediately have the witness in yourself also. I dare to say that a sinner justified by God stands on more certain footing than a righteous man justified by his works, if there could be such a person. For we can never be sure of whether we've done enough works, and our conscience would always be uneasy, wondering if we may have come up short. We only have the shaky verdict of human judgment to rely on. 
But when God justifies and the Holy Spirit bears witness, that gives us peace with God. This is why we can feel the matter is sure and settled, and we enter into rest. Hebrews 4, 3. No tongue can explain the depth of that calm which comes over the soul that receives the peace of God which passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 7. Chapter 3. The Just and the Justifier. We have seen the ungodly justified and have considered the great truth that only God can justify any person. Now we will take it a step further and ask, how can a just God justify guilty people? We can find the answer in the words of Paul in Romans 3, 21b to 26. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness, that is, of God by the faith of Jesus, the Christ, for all and upon all those that believe in him, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and are made destitute of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus the Christ, whom God purposed for reconciliation through faith in his blood for the manifestation of his righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past, by the patience of God, manifesting in this time his righteousness, that he only be the just one and the justifier of him that is of the faith of Jesus. Now, if you'll permit me, I want to share a bit of my personal experience with you. While under the hand of the Holy Spirit, I was convicted of sin. I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became an intolerable burden to me. It wasn't so much that I feared hell, but that I feared sin. I knew I was horribly guilty and felt that if God did not punish me for sin, he ought to condemn such sin as mine. I sat on the judgment seat and I condemned myself to death. I admitted that if I were God, I could do nothing other than send such a guilty creature as me to the lowest hell. While going through this, I also had a deep concern for the honor of God's name and the integrity of his moral leadership on my mind. It didn't set right with my conscience that I could be forgiven unjustly. The sin I committed had to be punished. I struggled with the question of how God could be just and yet justify me, the guilty. In my heart, I asked, how can he be just and yet the justifier? I was worried and wearied with this question and couldn't see any answer to it. Certainly, I could never have invented an answer that would satisfy my conscience. To my way of thinking, the doctrine of the atonement is one of the surest proofs of the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture. For my listeners who don't know what the doctrine of atonement is, it is that Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 in this way, he fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant and restored our relationship with God and changed our lives forever. Who would or could have thought of the just ruler dying for the unjust rebel? This isn't a teaching of human mythology or a fantasy of poetical imagination. This act of atoning for a crime, 
of making satisfaction for an offence by which the guilt is done away and the obligation of the offended person to be punished for the crime is cancelled is only known about because it is a fact. Fiction could never have conceived it, for God himself ordained it. I had heard the plan of salvation by the sacrifice of Jesus from the time I was a youth, but in my innermost soul I didn't understand or know any more about it than if I had been born and bred a savage, unbelieving man. The light of the truth was there in Scripture, but I was blind. I needed the Lord to make the matter clear to me. When he did, it came to me like a new revelation, as fresh as if I'd never read about Jesus being declared the propitiation or atonement for sins so God can be just. Every newborn child of God receives such a revelation, that glorious doctrine of the substitution of the Lord Jesus. I came to understand salvation was possible through substitutional sacrifice, and that provision for such a substitution had been made in the Son of God, the co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He had been made the promised head of a chosen people from the beginning, so he could suffer for them and save them. Considering that our fall from God's ways was not a personal one in the beginning, because sin began with our ancestral representative, the first Adam, we understand that by a second representative, Jesus, it became possible for us to be recovered, saved from sin, because he agreed to be the covenant head of his people, to be their second Adam. Scripture, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45 I saw that before I actually sinned, I had a fallen, spiritually dead nature through my first father's sin, and I rejoiced that it became possible, based on the facts and evidence of Scripture, for me to come to life through a second head and representative. The fall by Adam left a loophole of escape. Another Adam, the last Adam, can undo the ruin caused by the first. While I was anxious about the possibility of a just God pardoning me for my sin, I understood and saw by faith that this last Adam is Jesus, the Son of God who became man. In his blessed body, he bore my sin on the cross. The punishment I deserved because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, was laid on him. I was healed through his affliction because the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6:23. That's what God showed me. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever understood how God can be completely just, not cancel or diminish the penalty, but be infinitely merciful and still able to justify the ungodly who turn to him? It's possible because the Son of God, supremely glorious in his matchless person, vindicated me by fulfilling the law by bearing the sentence due me. Therefore, God is able to pass by my sin. The law of God was upheld more by the death of Christ than if all sinners were sent to hell. For the Son of God to suffer for sin was a more glorious establishment of the authority of God than for the whole human race to suffer. Jesus endured the death penalty on our behalf. Do you see the wonder in this? See him hanging on the cross. 
If you can see it, you see the most significant sight you'll ever see. The Son of God and Son of Man hanging there in one person bearing unspeakable pain, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Oh, the glory of that sight, the innocent punished, the Holy One condemned, the ever-blessed made a curse, the infinitely glorious put to a shameful death in my place, in your place. The more I look at the sufferings of the Son of God, the more certain I am that they meet my case. Why did he suffer, if not to turn aside the penalty of sin from us? So, if he turned it aside by his death, then it is out of the way. Those who believe in him no longer need to fear it, because since atonement is made, God is able to forgive without shaking the foundation of his throne or tarnishing the law in the least. The tremendous question put forth by our conscience is satisfied. The wrath of God against sin is more terrible than we can comprehend, whatever our sin may be. Moses said it very well. Who knows the power of thine anger? Psalm 90, 11. Yet when we hear the Lord of glory cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. And see him yielding up the spirit. We feel the justice of God abundantly vindicated by the obedience of such a perfect and terrible death given by such a divine person. If God himself bows before his own law, what more can be done? There is more in the atonement as a method of merit than there is in all human sin to deserve blame or punishment. The great gulf of Jesus' loving self-sacrifice can swallow up the mountains of our sins, all of them. For the sake of the infinite good of this one representative man, the Lord may well look with favor upon other people, however unworthy they may be. It's a miracle of miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ would stand in our stead and that he bore that we might never bear the Almighty's righteous ire. Footnote, John Nelson Darby, Hymns for the Little Flock, Oak Park, Illinois, Bible Truth Publishers, 1881, Section 3. But he has done so. It is finished. John 19.30 God will spare the sinner because he didn't spare his son. God can pass over your sins because he laid those sins on his only begotten son nearly 2,000 years ago. If you believe in Jesus, that is the point, then your sins were carried away by him as the scapegoat for his people. What is it to believe in him? It's more than saying he is God and the Savior. It means we must trust him wholly and entirely. You must accept him for all your salvation from this time forward and forever as your Lord, your Master, your all. If you will accept Jesus, he has accepted you already. If you believe on him, you cannot go to hell, because that would make the sacrifice of Christ of no effect. It can't be that a sacrifice would be accepted and then the soul for whom that sacrifice has been received still dies. If the believing soul could still be condemned, then why a sacrifice? If Jesus died in my place, why should I also die? Every believer can claim that the sacrifice was actually made for him. 
he's laid hold of it by faith and made it his own. As a result, he can know for certain that he can never perish. The Lord wouldn't receive this offering on our behalf and then condemn us to die. The Lord can't read our pardon written in the blood of his Son and then cut us down. That would be impossible. I pray you will accept the grace offered to you immediately and look to Jesus to begin at the beginning, to the source of mercy to guilty man, Jesus. He justifies the ungodly. God is he that justifies them. And for that reason, it can only be accomplished through the atoning sacrifice of his divine son. Consequently, it can be justly done, so justly done that no one will ever question it. So thoroughly done that in the last day when heaven and earth pass away, there will be no one who will deny the validity of the justification. Scripture, who is he that condemns them? Christ Jesus is he who died, and even more, he that also rose again, who furthermore is at the right hand of God, who also makes entreaty for us. Romans 8, 34. Will you come into this lifeboat just as you are? It offers safety from the wreck. Accept the undisputable deliverance. You say, I have nothing with me, but you aren't asked to bring anything with you. People who escape for their lives will leave even their clothes behind. Leap for salvation, just as you are. I tell you this about myself to encourage you. My sole hope for going to heaven lies in the full atonement made on Calvary's cross for the ungodly. I rely firmly on that. I don't have a shadow of hope anywhere else. You are in the same condition. Neither of us has anything of our own worth a bit of trust. Let's join hands and stand together at the foot of the cross and trust our souls immediately and completely to him who shed his blood for the guilty. We will be saved by one and the same Saviour. What more can I do to prove my own confidence in the gospel which I set before you? Chapter 4 Concerning Deliverance from Sinning at this point, I want to speak clearly to those who understand God's method of justification by faith in Christ Jesus, but who still struggle with sin in their lives. We can never be happy, restful, or spiritually healthy until we become holy. To be holy, we must be rid of sin. But how can we accomplish this impossible task? This is the life or death question of many people. The old nature is very strong, and you may have tried to curb and tame it, only to find it won't be subdued. You're anxious to do better, but only end up doing worse. The heart is so hard, the will is so obstinate, the passions so furious, the thoughts so volatile, the imagination so out of control, and the desires so wild that you feel like you have a den of wild beasts within you, which will eat you up rather than be ruled by the Lord. We can say of our fallen nature what the Lord said to Job concerning the large sea monster Leviathan. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou tie him up for thy maidens? Job 41, 5. 
A man might as well hope to hold the north wind in the hollow of his hand as to expect to control those unruly powers which lie within his fallen nature by his own strength. This is a greater feat than anything done by the strength of the fabled Hercules. For this, God is needed. One might say, I believe Jesus will forgive sin, but my trouble is that I sin again. Within me, I feel such awful tendencies to do evil. As surely as a stone flung into the air quickly falls to the ground again, so am I with sin. For though I am sent up to heaven by sincere preaching, I return again to my hard-hearted state. Sadly, I'm easily fascinated with sin. It's like I'm held under a spell where I can't escape from my own foolishness. If this is your struggle, take heart. Salvation would be sadly incomplete if it did not deal with this part of our ruined condition. We want to be purified as well as pardoned. Justification, being made righteous, without sanctification, becoming holy, would not be salvation at all. It would be like calling a leper clean and leaving him to die of his disease. It would forgive the rebellion and allow the rebel to remain an enemy to his king. It would remove the consequences but overlook the cause. And this would leave us with an endless and hopeless task. It would stop the stream of sin for a time, but leave an open fountain of defilement, which would sooner or later burst forth with increased power. Remember that the Lord Jesus came to take away sin in three ways. He came to remove the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. You can reach the second part immediately. The power of sin can be broken at once, and then you'll be on the road to the third part, the removal of the presence of sin. We know that he appeared to take away our sins. 1 John 3, 5 The angel said of our Lord, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21 our Lord Jesus came to destroy in us the works of the devil. The same thing stated at our Lord's birth was also declared in his death. When the soldier pierced his side, a flow of blood and water came out, which clarified the double cure by which we are delivered from the guilt and the defilement of sin. However, if you're troubled about the power of sin in your life and the tendencies of your nature, as you may well be, here is a promise for you. Have faith in this promise, because it is founded in that covenant of grace which is sure. God, who cannot lie, has said, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. You see, it's all I will and I put. I will give, and I will take away. This is the royal style of the King of Kings, who is able to accomplish his will. No word of his will ever fall to the ground. 1 Samuel 3.19 The Lord knows very well that you can't change your own heart, and you can't cleanse your own nature. But he also knows he can do both. He can cause the Ethiopian to change his skin and the leopard his spots. Hear this and be amazed. 
He can create you a second time. He can cause you to be born again. This is a miracle of grace, and the Holy Spirit will perform it. It would be a miraculous thing if a person could stand at the foot of Niagara Falls and say something that would cause the river Niagara to begin to run upstream and send that torrent of water leaping back up that great precipice over which it now rolls in stupendous force. Nothing but the power of God could achieve such a marvel. This Niagara Falls example offers a fitting parallel to what takes place if the course of your nature is totally reversed. All things are possible with God. He can reverse the direction of your desires and the current of your life. Instead of going downward, away from God, He can make your whole being have a tendency to flow upward, toward God. In fact, that is what the Lord has promised to do for all who are in the covenant. We know from Scripture that all believers are in the covenant. Let me share the words again. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11:19. What a wonderful promise! Christ Jesus agrees with it, and we can say Amen to the glory of God. Let's lay hold of it, accept it as true, and adopt it for ourselves. Then it will be fulfilled in us, and in days and years to come, we'll be able to sing of that wondrous change which the sovereign grace of God has worked in us. Consider this. When the Lord takes away the stony heart, that deed is done. Once that is done, no known power can ever take away the new heart He gives and the right spirit which He puts within us. Scripture For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Romans 11:29. This without repentance is on his part. He will not change his mind. He does not take away what he has already given. Let him renew you, and you will be renewed. People's resolutions to change and their efforts to clean up their lives soon come to an end. For as a dog returns to his vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. Proverbs 26:11. But when God puts a new heart into us, it is a new heart to the fullest extent. To put it simply, have you ever heard of Mr. Roland Hill's illustration of the cat and the sow? I will offer my own version to illustrate our Savior's significant word. Except a person be born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. Do you see that cat? What a clean creature she is! How cleverly she washes herself with her tongue and her paws! It is quite an appealing sight! Did you ever see a sow do that? No, you never did. It is contrary to its nature. It prefers to wallow in the mire. Go and teach a sow to wash itself and see how little success you achieve. It would be a big sanitary improvement if swine would be clean. But teaching them to wash and clean themselves like the cat would be a useless task. You can wash that sow by force, but it will just hurry back to the mire and become as foul as ever. The only way you can get a sow to wash itself is to transform it into a cat. Then it will wash and be clean, but not until then. 
Suppose that transformation is accomplished, then what was difficult or impossible is easy enough. From that time forward, the swine will be fit for your parlor and the rug in front of your hearth. It is the same with an ungodly person. You can't force them to do what a renewed man does willingly. You can teach them and set a good example for them, but they can't learn the art of holiness because they don't have a mind to do it. Their nature leads them another way. When the Lord makes a new creation of them, then everything is different. This change is so great that I once heard a convert say, either all the world is changed or else I am. The new nature follows after right as naturally as the old nature wanders after wrong. What a blessing to receive such a nature. Only the Holy Spirit can give it. Did it ever strike you what a wonderful thing it is for the Lord to give a new heart and a right spirit to a person? Perhaps you've seen a lobster which has fought with another lobster and lost one of its claws and a new claw has grown. That is a remarkable thing, but it's much more astounding that a person could have a new heart given to him. This is a miracle beyond the powers of nature. There is a tree that when you cut off one of its limbs, another one can grow in its place. But can you change the tree? Can you sweeten sour sap? Can you make the thorn tree bear figs? No, but you can graft something better into it. This is the analogy nature gives us of the work of grace. But to absolutely change the vital sap of the tree would really be a miracle. It is just such a wonder and mystery that the power of God works in all who believe in Jesus. If you yield yourself to his divine working, the Lord will alter your nature. He will subdue the old nature and breathe new life into you. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a tender heart of flesh. Where everything was hard, everything will become tender. Where everything was vicious, everything will become virtuous. Where everything tended to go downward, everything will rise upward with spontaneous force. The lion of anger will give way to the lamb of meekness, and the raven of uncleanness will flee before the dove of purity. The vile serpent of deceit will be trodden under the heel of truth. With my own eyes, I've seen such marvelous of moral and spiritual character that I know there's no one who is hopeless. If it were fitting, I could point out women who were once unchaste, but are now as pure as a driven snow. And I could do the same with men who were once blasphemers, who now delight those around them by their intense devotion to Christ. Thieves are made honest, drunkards sober, liars truthful, and scoffers zealous. Scripture, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live temperately, righteously, and godly in this present world. And, dear listener, it will do the same for you. Titus 2, 11 to 12. You say, I can't make this change. Who said you could? The scripture which we have quoted is not talking about what man will do, but about what God will do. It is God's promise, and it is for him to fulfill. 
Trust in him to fulfill his word to you, and it will be done. But how is it to be accomplished, you ask? What business is that of yours? Must the Lord explain his methods before you will believe him? The Lord's working in this matter is a great mystery. The Holy Spirit performs it, and it is a spiritual matter, not a physical matter. He who made the promise has the responsibility of keeping the promise, and he is equal to the occasion. God, who promises this marvelous change, will surely carry it out in as many as receive him. For to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 How I pray you would believe, that you would do the gracious Lord the justice to believe that he can and will do this great miracle for you. I pray you would believe that God cannot lie. Trust him for a new heart and a right spirit, for he can give them to you. May the Lord give you faith in his promise, faith in his Son, faith in the Holy Spirit, and faith in him. And to him shall be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 5 By Grace Through Faith for by grace are ye saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8. I think it is best to turn to the side for a moment to ask my listener to adoringly observe the fountainhead, the source of our salvation, which is the grace of God. By grace are ye saved. Because God is gracious, sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It isn't because of anything in them, or that ever can be in them, or anything they've done, or ever can do, that they are saved. It is because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Linger a moment at the wellhead. Behold the pure river of the water of life as it proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Who can measure the extensiveness of the grace of God? Who can fathom its depth? Like all the rest of the divine attributes, his grace is infinite. God is full of love because God is love. 1 John 4, 8 God is full of goodness. The very name God is short for good. Limitless goodness and love enter into the very heart of the Godhead because his mercy endures forever. Psalm 136, 1. People are not destroyed because his compassions never fail. Lamentations 3, 22. But instead, sinners are brought to him and forgiven. Remember this, or you may make the mistake of fixing your mind so much on faith, which is the channel of salvation, that you forget the grace, which is the fountain and source even of faith itself. Faith is the work of God's grace in us. No one can say that Jesus is the Christ, but by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Christ hath also said, No man cometh unto me except the Father, which hath sent me. Draw him. Footnote, Martin Luther, the Theologia Germanica of Martin Luther, 1516. 
So that faith which results in coming to Christ is the consequence of divine drawing, which pulls us toward the Father. Grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation, and faith, essential as it is, is only an important part of the machinery which grace employs. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace. Let those words sound out as if announced with the archangel's trumpet. By grace are ye saved. What happy news this is for the undeserving. Faith works like a channel or conduit pipe, while grace is the fountain and the stream. Faith is the aqueduct along which the flood of mercy flows to refresh the thirsty sons of men. It is a great pity when the aqueduct is broken. It is a sad sight to see the many noble aqueducts around Rome which no longer carry water into the city because arches are broken and the marvelous structures are in ruins. The aqueduct must be kept whole and intact to carry the flow. And even then, faith must be founded in truth and be firm, leading right up to God and coming right down to us. So it can become a functional channel of mercy to our souls. Again, I remind you that faith is only the channel or aqueduct and not the original source of blessing. We must not look to faith in a way that elevates it above the grace of God, which is the divine source of all blessing. Don't think of faith as if it is the independent source of your salvation. Our new life is found with our eyes fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12:2, not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us. Yet the power isn't in the faith but in the God upon whom faith relies. Grace is the powerful engine, and faith is the chain by which the coach of the soul is attached. The righteousness of faith isn't the moral excellence of faith, but rather the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which faith grasps and seizes hold of. Peace within the soul isn't derived from the contemplation of our own faith. It comes to us from him who is our peace, the hem of whose garment faith touches and virtue comes out of into the soul. See then that the weakness of your faith won't destroy you. A trembling hand can still receive a golden gift. The Lord's salvation can come to us even if we have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed. The power lies in the grace of God and not in our faith. Great messages can be 